Hello and welcome to All Points In Between, the travel podcast that goes to the beach with rolled up trousers and a knotted hanky on its head. Last time I teased you that we'd be talking about riding the world famous iron ore train across the Sahara Desert in Mauritania. I want to do this episode with my friend who travelled with me so that we can discuss the journey and how to do it together. But at the moment, they're pretty slammed at work and can't record. So the episode itself, much like the iron ore train, is experiencing a delay. Instead, we're going to continue our guide on driving the West African coastal route to Dakar. I'll take you through some of the good parking spots along the way and things to see and do as you're going. We've previously covered the drive from Marrakesh through the territory of Western Sahara, and in this episode we'll pick up in the city of Nuadibu in the north of Mauritania. At this point we've just finished off showering a fourth rail bridge worth of iron ore out of various wrinkles and crevices, so we're pretty much ready to go. With that, it's time to set the scene with some density sounding open source intro music. For a country twice the size of France, Mauritania is very easy to navigate. Most of the country is searing desert and rolling sand dunes, and the large majority of people live in towns on the coast. Connecting these towns is the N2 highway, which runs the length of the country. Until the 1970s, if you wanted to make this journey over land, you needed a 4x4, and you'd have to drive along the beach stopping and starting with the tides. It's still possible to make the trip this way, if you're feeling particularly adventurous and your van is up to making that journey. Doing, doing it this way will take you along the coastline of the Bank d'Argan National Park, which is one of the highlights of the country. However, for those of us in less robust vehicles, the N2 will still provide you with more than enough desert landscape. As with the earlier section through Western Sahara, you'll need to make sure that you top up your fuel whenever it drops below half a tank. Towns and petrol stations, they're pretty few and far between. For the first hour of your drive out of Nuadibu, you'll be running parallel on the train line to Zurat. If you started early in the morning, then be sure to give a honk and a wave to the iron ore train, along with the backpackers and the locals who are sat on top of the carriages as it passes. While most of the N2 is in fairly good shape, there are still parts of it where you need to take care. When the highway turns south at the town of Bon Lanour, there's a 50 to 60 kilometre section, which is notorious for large potholes. At this point, 
the rules of driving on the right-hand side of the road are informally suspended, and it becomes more drive on whichever side of the road will put your suspension through the least punishment. But rest assured, the road does get better again eventually. Every 100 kilometres or so, you'll come across a lonely police checkpoint. At these, you're expected to provide the officers with details of yourself, your vehicle and your planned journey. Presumably, this is so that if you do go missing, the police will have a rough idea of when they last saw you. Writing these details down at each checkpoint can be quite a chore, and the officer will usually just ask you for a fiche. So, a fiche is simply a printout of all the details that the checkpoint needs from you. They're not official documents. So you can just whip one up on a word processor and print it out. In the show notes, I'll include a web page listing the details that you need to put into your fiche. You'll be asked for these a lot, so it's worth getting 50 to 60 copies of it printed before setting off on your trip. The people manning the checkpoints, and yes, it's all men, are by and large a friendly bunch. Like most people in Mauritania, they seem pleasantly surprised that you're there, although a little confused as to why you are there of all places. Fairly regularly, you'll be asked for some paracetamol, either in French or in Arabic, or if you don't speak those languages, then through a series of mimes. I only note this because it seems to happen unusually frequently. I suppose if you're out under the desert sun all day, then perhaps you get a bit dehydrated and develop a bit of a headache. It'll gain you some goodwill points to have a few packs spare in your medicine cabinet that you can share. The road runs along the eastern edge of the national park that I mentioned earlier. It'd be foolhardy to try and drive into the park without a 4x4, but there are tours that can be arranged where you can leave your van and spend a few days exploring the park. This also means that you'll be going with a guide who will make sure that you don't get too lost. If you're driving straight through to Nouakchott, then a good place to stop for lunch is the town of Shami. It's one of the few larger settlements on this 480 kilometer stretch of road, so it's pretty hard to miss. Historically, this was a gold mining area. When we parked up, one of the locals told us that in the past, you used to be able to just find the stuff lying around in the desert here. These days, the town is mostly a way station for lorries making the trip between the country's two main cities. The area's still pretty conservative. The restaurant we stopped at required you to take your shoes off before entering. It had separate dining areas for males and females. And the rooms themselves were just that. An empty space where you sat down in a carpet with a handful of locals who were drinking tea and watching the TV. The 
place felt more like a community common room than anything else. A large plate of chicken, rice and chips cost about a pound, which certainly beats getting a sandwich from a petrol station. Shammy seems to have a market in the centre of town on most days. Or it certainly did when I was driving down and driving back up again. So if you have time, then it might be worth a wander around before continuing on to your next stretch of featureless desert. The drive from Nuadibu to Nuakchot can be made in a day. As you approach the capital, there is a marked increase in the number of checkpoints on the road, and it widens into a four-lane highway. Continuing along the N2, it will take you skirting around the centre of the city. But as you approach from the north, you'll see several roads leading off to nearby beach clubs. Many of these allow you to park up your van for a few days. The clubs are where the Nuakchot diplomatic and expat communities spend most of their weekends. A particular favourite among them is the Sultan Beach Club. And I'm reliably informed by several backpackers that it is one of the best restaurants in the city. A few kilometres south of Sultan is a beach club called Tergit Vacancies, which I have just probably mispronounced. But this is where I decided to spend my beach days. There's no electric hookup, but it does have a nice cafe and a terrace looking out over the Atlantic. Its other big advantage is that it's a short walk along the beach from Nuakchot's fishing port. Every day, the mostly Senegalese fishermen head out into the ocean in their brightly painted wooden boats that line the sand dunes. Heading down there in the afternoon will allow you to watch as the day's catch is brought in. For the smaller vessels, this is a pretty straightforward task. Point the boat at the beach, gun the engine and ride it up onto a trailer. But for the larger boats, you'll see the crews battling the pitch and roll of the waves as a human chain wades out into the surf to haul buckets of fish back to the shore. The locals here are more used to having dozy tourists wandering around, and so there's none of the photo restrictions that you had when you were in the Wadibu. If you ask nicely, they may even give you a thrashing at one of the many table football sets dotted around the market. The highlight of the port, though, has to be the artwork on the boats themselves. Swirling, multicoloured patterns, usually with the badge of a European football club adorning the prow. Chelsea, Borussia Dortmund, Bayern Munich are particularly popular. But... Of course, the one that you will see everywhere is the badge of Barcelona FC. I'm fully convinced that if we ever discover life on Mars, we'll find Barcelona fans already living there. Every restaurant and tea shop in Mauritania seems to have their recent matches playing on a constant loop. 
a roar of cheers could be heard from living rooms across the city when they scored during their El Clasico match against Real Madrid. While it's possible to get a taxi from your beach parking spot into town, it's probably a good idea to move your van closer to the city centre. There are a number of hostels which have some parking spots for vans and smaller motorhomes. Some of these even have an electric hookup. The spot I chose was a place called Africa Escale. It's about a 20 minute walk from the city centre. It has a hotel with a small number of rooms, so if you're looking to get out of your van for a few nights, it's a good place to stop. The parking space itself is in a small yard shaded with trees. The owner can be found for much of the day, sat on cushions on the terrace. He wears the traditional blue desert robes that many of the people in Mauritania still wear over the rough clothes. There's a small kitchen which serves traditional food. On Friday, the owner treated us to a plate of grilled camel and some freshly baked bread. And in the nights, there was plenty of free tea available. If you're not really looking for something traditional and you're feeling a little homesick at this point, then just around the corner from Africa Escale is the India Gate restaurant. It's a popular hangout for the British expat community and is perhaps the only place within a thousand kilometres where you can get a half-decent lamb vindaloo. The diplomatic presence in the city does mean there's a bit more variety in the food available here than you'll see on the rest of the trip. Another favourite of mine was the Chinese restaurant a short walk from their embassy. The name escapes me, but if you wander along the M2, you can't miss it. It's, again, probably the only Chinese restaurant in the country. Right. Feeling fed and well rested? Then it's time to go into Nouakchott and see what it has to offer. The city is all pretty new. When it was chosen to be the capital in 1958, it was one of just a number of small villages along the coast. I can imagine it looked a bit like Shami does today. From there, in the span of less than one lifetime, it's grown to over a million inhabitants. This kind of staggering expansion would be a challenge even for a wealthy nation. And as such, the place does have a bit of a thrown together feel for it. Particularly once you're out of the centre and off the end too. Perhaps the place where this can be seen most clearly is at the site of the old airport. Before 2016, the city's airport used to be a short walk from the government district, but it was then moved to a new site around 25 kilometres north of the city. In the years since it's closed, the airport has been rapidly reclaimed by expansion. The runway acts as an informal north-south highway through this emerging district of houses, mechanics, shops, tea houses, 
and all the necessities of city living that are being thrown up on the land. None of it, I imagine, very central planning. As climate change and desertification, well, even more desertification, I mean, drive more people into the city, its population is only going to continue to grow. As you'd expect for a city this far off the tourist trail, there isn't much in the way of specific attractions. In the centre of the government district, you'll find the National Museum of Mauritania. If you're lucky, there might even be somebody manning it that day who can let you in. The museum houses a sparse collection of artefacts from the country's history. A handful of traditional costumes, some flint arrowheads, a few local pots and cooking utensils. It's not exactly the British Museum or the Berlin Pergamon. But then, Mauritania didn't have the advantage of spending a few hundred years going round the world stealing everything that wasn't nailed down. So that's unsurprising. The government district has several fairly grand-looking buildings. The National Parliament, the Presidential Palace, the Grand Mosque. But you can only see them from the outside. On the edge of this district is the Sheikh Baidar Stadium. This is where the national football team and most of the city's Premier League matches are played. There is a larger national stadium to the north of the city centre, but mostly this gets used for markets, concerts and other festivities. Fixtures at the Baidar can be a little hard to find. The best source I came across was on the Mauritanian Football Federation's Facebook page, and on that they do post up the coming week's fixtures. If you're around on a weekend and are so inclined, you can catch a Premier League game by just walking through the entrance for free. There's not a huge following for the domestic league in Mauritania, but there'll usually be a few hundred people at the game, drumming away and waving flags. The average age of the fans, and indeed the players, is about 16. But they were very welcoming to this confused-looking old man when I came and sat among them. Heading east past the old airport is the city's camel market. Here, the photo restrictions apply again. Probably because traders going about the business don't really have time to be distracted by sunburnt tourists taking selfies with their wares. They're a friendly bunch to speak with, though, and it's an interesting place to spend an hour or two wandering around. In the evenings, the city has a large number of tea shops, juice bars, shisha places. A lot of the expat community head over to the Académie Française, which is in the compound of the French embassy. Most weeks, they'll host concerts, film screenings, and other cultural events that are going on in the city. It's also just quite a nice place to chill out in the embassy gardens while sipping a non-alcoholic beer. The city is the hub for all of the main highways that head out across the desert. The N1 will take you back north towards Zurat. 
it can make for a more interesting way to get to the start point of the iron ore train, given that the alternatives to Zurat are either flying or riding a bone-shaking passenger car out from Nuadibu. The N3 heads southeast towards an oasis village called Aleg, which also has one of the country's few lakes, and marks the southern reaches of the Sahara Desert. Further along that highway, depending on how hardy your vehicle is, you can cross into Mali. But for now, we'll stay on the N2. When I was there in February of 2023, a large section of the road to the south of the capital was under construction. But that's okay, because we're in Mauritania, and road rules here are more of a vibe. So just follow the 40-year-old Mercedes E-Class in front of you, and pick your way across the undulating dirt track that seems to go through people's backyards. Before you know it, you'll be back on the road and on the way to Senegal which is where we'll pick up again next time. I hope you're enjoying the trip so far. If you want to find out about new episodes, then you can subscribe to the show on most podcasting apps, or you can find us on Twitter at AllPointsCast. If you'd like to humble me more directly, then you can do that by emailing allpointspod at gmail.com. Look forward to having you back for the final part of our drive down to Senegal in two weeks. Until then, it's May Al Samar from me. Speak to you again soon. As climate change and desert, ah. as climate change and desertification, well, even more desert. Ah. That's a hard word.